Saul seems kingly to the eye, but he is hiding amongst the baggage, and everyone finds him there. He does not seem eager to be the leader, but no matter. All gaze in awe at his height. Hooray, he's so tall! Long live the king! This, then, may be the sin of Israel, in making a monarchy first and foremost about appearances. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 84, Washington, Adams, and the Israelite Monarchy. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In the HBO series John Adams, the young, ambitious, and short founding father, played by Paul Giamatti, is depicted standing outside the Continental Congress conversing with Benjamin Franklin when they all of a sudden meet a Virginian by the name of George Washington. After Washington walks away, Adams comments, a natural leader. And Franklin says, well, he's always the tallest man in the room. He's bound to end up leading something. It is a funny moment, though the quip about Washington's tallness leading to his becoming a leader is usually ascribed to Adams. And one source for this might come from a somewhat kvetchy letter that Adams wrote to his friend Dr. Benjamin Rush many years later. Adams, in this correspondence, lists the various reasons that, in his view, were the sources of Washington's success. I quote selections from the letter. Quote, Self-taught or book-learned in the arts, our hero was much indebted to his talents for his immense elevation above his fellows. Talents? You will say what talents? I answer. One, an handsome face. Two, a tall stature like the Hebrew sovereign chosen because he was taller by the head than the other Jews. Three, an elegant form. Four, graceful attitudes and movement. Five, a large imposing fortune consisting of a great landed estate left him by his father and brother besides a large jointure with his lady. Six, Washington was a Virginian. This is equivalent to five talents. Virginian geese are all swans. Not a burn in Scotland is more national. Not a lad upon the highlands is more clannish than every Virginian I have ever known. They trumpet one another with the most pompous and mendacious panegyrics. The Philadelphians and New Yorkers who are local and partial enough to themselves are meek and modest in comparison with Virginian old dominionisms. Washington, of course, was extolled without bounds. End quote. So Adams writes, and Adams may have been catching a bit, but he was, of course, aware of Washington's real virtues, some of which he makes clear later in the letter. At the same time, Adams was entirely correct that, at times, people pay attention to superficial aspects of appearance in looking to leaders. And it is 100% accurate for Adams to ascribe to the Israelites in a biblical allusion the superficiality of embracing a leader because of his height. This point by Adams is a reference to the portion of the book of Samuel that we study today, and pondering it will allow us to understand, at least in part, why Israel's initial choice of monarch went awry, and also what truly is the source of a leader's greatness. After the death of Eli the high priest and the fall of the tabernacle at Shiloh, Samuel succeeds in uniting the people of Israel, leading them to battle against the Philistines and bringing about a unity utterly unknown for much of the judges' period. The source of his success, at least in part, seems to have been the fact that he did not limit his location to one tribe, but instead made an annual circuit of Israel. Chapter 6, verse 15. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went from year to year in circuit to Beit El and Gilgal and Mitzpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But as Samuel ages, his leadership passes to his sons, who prove inadequate to the calling, and the Israelites request not a different judge, but a different system of government entirely. Chapter 8, verse 4. 
Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel to Ramah and said to him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel, and Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Hearken to the voice of the people and all that they say to thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. One thing is made clear in Scripture. Israel's request for a king is a grave sin. Indeed, even after a king is appointed, anointed, and acclaimed, even before this king has committed any sin at all, God again makes known his displeasure at the state of affairs through a sign by Samuel. And this is chapter 12, verse 17. Says Samuel, Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord, and he shall send thunder and rain, that you may know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for a king for yourselves. Why is Israel's request for a king a rejection of God? There are two possible answers here. One is that the Bible would have preferred an Israelite republic led by a prophet such as Moses, Joshua, or Samuel, and that the reverence shown to a hereditary monarch borders on idolatry because it takes away from the glory of God. Those who watch the Netflix series The Crown are familiar with the episode where the queen is anointed in Westminster Abbey and Edward, the abdicated king, watches on television along with his friends in France. And in the midst of all the splendor and the oil and the jewels and the crown, an American says to Edward, it's crazy. And Edward replies, on the contrary, it's perfectly sane. Who wants transparency when you can have magic? Who wants prose when you can have poetry? Pull away the veil and what are you left with? An ordinary young woman. And then Edward adds, but wrap her up like this, anoint her with oil and hey presto, what do you have? A goddess. The Samuel story is the other main biblical passage utilized by Thomas Paine in his insistence in common sense that all monarchy is immoral. Paine put it this way, quote, The hankering which the Jews had for the idolatrous customs of the heathens is something exceedingly unaccountable. But so it was that laying hold of the misconduct of Samuel's two sons, who were entrusted with some secular concerns, they came in an abrupt and clamorous manner to Samuel, saying, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all other nations. And here we cannot but observe that their motives were bad, viz. that they might be like unto other nations, i.e. the heathens, whereas their true glory laid in being as much unlike them as possible. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them, end quote. Payne then goes on to discuss the further condemnation by Samuel of Israel's request, and then Payne concludes, quote, These portions of Scripture are direct and positive. They admit of no equivocal construction. That the Almighty hath here entered his protest against monarchical government is true, or the Scripture is false, end quote. Thus, Samuel provides Payne an argument against monarchy support for his insistence that all monarchy borders on idolatry. But of course, there is another way of reading the passage in Samuel, which Payne himself hints to, an approach that is advocated according to one opinion in the Talmud, and that is that it would not be wrong to ask for a king so long as the monarch is a righteous Israelite that draws the people's reverence toward the divine. The sin of Israel here, according to this opinion, is not asking for such a king but rather one which, in the Israelites' words, is kechol hagoyim, like all the other nations, meaning the sin is that the Israelites' approach here is 
similar to the pagan embrace of royalty. Israel asks for a king that they can idolize, and they are going to get a king who looks the part, a king seemingly born for reverence, a king from central casting. This is someone born to a Benjaminite named Kish, chapter 9, verse 2. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man and handsome. And there was not among the children of Israel a goodlier person than he. From his shoulders and upwards, he was taller than any of the people. So the Bible tells us, but of course we know that this is a purely superficial qualification. And we also know that tallness is no indication of whether one is an appropriate leader. Saul, looking for his father's animals, turns to Samuel the seer for help in finding them. And the prophet informs Saul that he, Saul, will be the first king of Israel. Verse 21. And Saul answered and said, Am not I a Benjaminite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then dost thou speak to me? This may sound like humility, but as we will see, it may also hint to the fact that Saul lacks the confidence necessary for leadership. When Samuel gathers the people, and it is announced that Saul of Benjamin would be the next king, the man is nowhere to be found. Chapter 10, verse 22. Therefore they inquired again of the Lord, Did the man come here? And the Lord answered, Behold, he is hidden among the baggage. And they ran and fetched him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upwards. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? And there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. It is a striking series of sentences. Samuel says, Hari'item, do you see whom God has chosen? And all Israel acclaims the king based solely on sight. Saul seems kingly to the eye, but he is hiding amongst the baggage, and everyone finds him there. He does not seem eager to be the leader, but no matter. All gaze in awe at his height. Hooray, he's so tall! Long live the king! The scene brings to mind the comments of the king in Shakespeare's Henry V. He says, what have kings that privates have not to, save ceremony, save general ceremony? And what art thou, thou idle ceremony? What kind of god art thou, that sufferest more of mortal griefs than do thy worshippers? What are thy rents? What are thy comings in? O ceremony, show me but thy worth. What is thy soul of adoration? Art thou aught else but place, degree, and form, creating awe and fear in other men? Wherein thou art less happy being feared than they in fearing? What drinkest thou oft instead of homage sweet, but poisoned flattery? In other words, if a monarchy is founded largely on the external, on ceremony, then it's not true leadership. This, then, may be the sin of Israel, in making a monarchy first and foremost about appearances. Following a battle against Ammon in chapter 11, which we shall discuss tomorrow, a public coronation is held. The ceremony is great public, seemingly inspiring. But it cannot be the ceremony that makes the monarch, and if it is, Israel is in trouble. And as we read about it, we know that only several chapters from here we will read of the anointment of another king, but this one will take place in private in Bethlehem. There will be no exultant crowds, no ceremonies, and the man anointed, David, will not be tall at all. And yet, that anointing will be the most significant one in the history of the world and the man pronounced as the future king will become the ancestor of the most important dynasty in the Bible. So what have kings, asked Shakespeare, that privates have not to? As we will see, the mark of a true leader for the Bible lies in what is within, 
or as Heraclitus said, character is destiny. And the truth is that John Adams recognized that Washington's success was linked to his incredible internal virtues. Thus, Adams adds the following in his enumeration of Washington's talents, quote, He possessed the gift of silence. This I esteem as one of the most precious talents. Nine, he had great self-command. It cost him a great exertion sometimes and a constant constraint, but to preserve so much equanimity as he did required a great capacity. End quote. These are striking descriptions because these, silence and self-command, are decidedly qualities that Adams himself did not always have. He let people know what he thought, often, at times, to his own political detriment. And in the end, Washington's greatness was reflected, both in what he did, but also in what he did not do. The most revered man in America, Washington nevertheless taught America that power did not belong to him by right. The man who looked like a king worked to teach America not to idolize human beings. Washington did not turn down the position of leader of the Continental Army when, thanks to Adams and others, it was offered to him. He served as president of the Constitutional Convention when it could only succeed with him. He did not engage in extreme or unnecessary humility, but at the same time, knowing how adulated he was, he always eschewed the extremes of power and avoided the people's idolization of himself. It is no coincidence that along with John Trumbull's painting of the Declaration of Independence featuring Adams and Jefferson, there also hangs in the rotunda of Congress Trumbull's image of Washington resigning his commission. Washington would, of course, lead America again after this, but the scene is celebrated as a moment that marked Washington's life. Paul Johnson, in his biography of Washington, describes the scene after the victory of the Revolution. Quote, the actual resignation of his command, having made peace between the civil and military powers of the new country, and, in an emotional ceremony bidden farewell to his officers on December 4, 1783, took place in Annapolis, Maryland, on December 23rd, when he formally handed back to Congress his commission as commander-in-chief, which they had given him in June 1775. He said he would never again hold public office. He had his horse waiting at the door, and he took the road to Mount Vernon the next day. No one who knew Washington was surprised. Everyone else, in varying degrees, was astonished at the singular failure of the corruption of power to work. And indeed, it was a rare moment in history. In London, George III questioned the American-born painter Benjamin West what Washington would do now he had won the war. Oh, said West, they say he will return to his farm. If he does that, said the king, he will be the greatest man in the world. End quote. To lead, but to not allow adulation to get to one's head, and to understand that leadership is not about one's height, but about character. This is the mark of greatness. Tallness is not a qualification, but a study of the greatest of leaders. In Israel and elsewhere, reminds us that it is the character of true leaders that give them a very great stature indeed. This is Mayor Soloveitchik. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.